This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, it's hurricane season, and when called upon, active duty forces from U.S. Army North lend their support. I'll talk to the commanding general about responding to natural disasters and the mission of defending the homeland. And the National Institutes of Health created the BRAIN Initiative to unlock the human brain's mysteries and fund cutting-edge research to better understand our neural circuits and develop treatments and cures. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. U.S. Army North's number one mission is to defend the homeland. But when natural disasters strike, they are often called in to lend support. Lieutenant General John Evans is the commanding general of U.S. Army North. General, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mimi. It's great to be here this morning, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to your audience. So where is U.S. Army North in the overall DOD structure, and how do you interact with U.S. Northern Command? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, U.S. Northern Command is one of our newest combatant commands. Uh, and Army North's uh, role and responsibility is to be the Army Service Component Command for NORTHCOM. So each of our combatant commands uh, have a service component from each of the services that handle things in their principal domain. And since we are the Army, we operate principally in the land domain. So my responsibilities to General Van Herc at U.S. Northern Command are to handle those challenges that might manifest themselves in the land domain here in the homeland. So your mission is homeland defense. Um, DHS's mission is homeland security. So what's the difference and, and where is that line drawn? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's a bit, a bit of a nuanced uh, line, frankly. I think uh, after 9-11, we all saw uh, the requirement to be proactive in securing our homeland. And, and frankly, that's the, the bulk of what DHS's mission is and all of its subordinate federal agencies. Uh, in the Department of Defense, we're in the, we're in the business of being able to defend uh, assets that are here in the homeland. Uh, we're also in the business of being able to respond should an attack occur. And so even though federal authorities may have some limited capability to respond, uh, they're generally doing consequence management. Uh, our job is on America's worst day to be prepared to defend the American people, our critical infrastructure in support of the United States Northern Command uh, should uh, a, 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 a malicious uh, actor decide to attack us here in our homeland. Well, let's talk about Mother Nature attacking. The Atlantic hurricane season is already upon us. And before we talk about preparing for, for this season, can you give us a historical view of how and why active duty forces have been called in to support domestic hurricane response? Sure, I, I think the reason that we have defense support civil authorities writ large is because the Department of Defense brings to the table considerable manpower and resources that can be leveraged in time of need very quickly to support federal disaster response. So since 1988, we've supported over 40 hurricane events uh, here in the homeland. I think uh, Katrina uh, was a galvanizing event for our country, uh, demonstrated that there are certainly just things that local, state, and even federal uh, entities may not be able to handle 
uh, without the support of the Department of Defense. And so we stand ready uh, every year when the hurricane season started, it just started about a month ago, the official uh, hurricane season, uh, to provide Title X forces, that is active duty uh, forces, to support the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, across their 10 regions in the event uh, we need to respond to uh, a hurricane. And I understand your command was very involved in uh, Puerto Rico in the response to Hurricane Maria. Absolutely. Again, another significant learning moment, I think, for us. As you take a look at uh, where Puerto Rico and, frankly, the Virgin Islands sit geographically, uh, they're very unprotected uh, from hurricanes that tend to form uh, off the coast of Africa and then take kind of a southern swoop in, if you will, uh, as they come up from the South Atlantic. Uh, the, the Irma and Maria were devastating hurricanes for both those regions, and we had to really leverage a whole-of-government response in order to get there. Uh, United States Northern Command leaned on Army North to be the Joint Force Land Component Command for that response, uh, and we were there for a number of months trying to help out the people of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And climate change is causing more frequent and more severe hurricanes. So how are you ramping up for that? Yeah, I think what we're finding is uh, we're learning from the lessons of the past, and we are being very proactive in our approach to address uh, the changes that we see in the climate. Uh, we, we believe that we are going to continue to see a significant number of storms. Uh, we believe the, the magnitude and intensity of those storms may increase over time. Uh, and so we, we conduct rock drills, uh, rehearsal of concept drills. We conduct um, tabletop exercises to talk about how we can bring very rapidly Title X forces uh, to support our federal agencies, our state agencies in time of need. So I think a lot of it has to do with just working on preparedness. And General, can you give me a little bit more information on what capability exactly you bring that FEMA can't do on their own, that the National Guard forces can't do on their own? Yeah, so it's interesting. My, my command is actually very small with regards to the permanent party that are assigned. But what we can do is, uh, based on the command structure I have, we can reach across the breadth of the Department of Defense, across all services, uh, and bring capability in. And I would provide the command and control uh, construct uh, in order to support FEMA. For instance, uh, if engineering capability is needed to clear, clear roads or to provide power, uh, we have the ability to, to command and control that. Uh, if we need to, to place MP in, MPs in areas, military police in areas, to secure infrastructure, we can do that. Or if we just need more hands on the job to provide assistance, to give out aid, or water, food distribution, those types of things, we, we have the capability to do that as well. All right, General Evans, we're gonna take a quick uh, pause right here and then we'll come back and continue our conversation. Thank you. We'll continue our conversation with Lieutenant General John Evans after the break. Welcome back. We're continuing the discussion with Lieutenant General John Evans. He's the commanding general of U.S. Army North. General, in addition to uh, responding to hurricanes, I understand that you also respond to wildfires when that request is made. Can you tell me how you do that? Interestingly, I was just at the National Interagency Fire Center yesterday, um, just by happenstance. Uh, you know, we've seen over the course of the last several years, certainly, uh, an increase in the intensity of the fires, particularly in the West and Northwest. Uh, we've seen drier weather. We're going through a pretty significant drought here in Texas right now. We've had some pretty hot temperatures 
starting in May a little bit earlier than usual. All of these things are combining to make the fire situation uh, much more significant across the United States. Once again, the, the principal response uh, for any type of wildfire is to start at the lowest level with local agencies. Uh, and then they move to a regional construct where they have the ability to bring in help from outside the local area. Uh, and then the National uh, Interagency Fire Center really kind of uh, controls the pace of how they're handling hundreds of fires by the end of the summer. Uh, and if they, if they see a, a, a situation where they can't provide uh, the trained firefighters that they need uh, at the level two area, so really off of the fire line, providing support to, to clean up and mop up type operations, they can ask for Title X support from the Department of Defense. And then we have uh, one battalion that we identify each year uh, across DOD to provide support uh, in the event Title X forces are needed to reinforce the fire effort. And in addition to hurricanes and firefighting, um, climate change is also impacting the Arctic region. And there have been a number of uh, exercises recently. Can you tell me how you're involved there? Yeah, certainly. Uh, we just completed a major exercise in February called Arctic Age 22. And what we were really trying to do was demonstrate our ability to operate in the Arctic. Uh, if you take a look at Alaska, for instance, uh, from Alaska, you are closer to North Korea, China, Russia, most of Northern Europe. Uh, really the, the places in the world where we are focused with regards to our defense efforts. So it's a, it's a part of the world that we need to be prepared to defend, but the environment there makes it very, very challenging. Uh, as you can imagine with temperatures and the sub-zeros for months out of the year, uh, very difficult to train people, to equip them properly, to make sure that they have the protective equipment they need to be able to do their missions in that type of environment. We're working on those types of things and Arctic Edge 22 gave the United States Northern Command an opportunity to bring together uh, an integrated concept for how we would look at defending our, uh, our Arctic reaches. And the COVID-19 pandemic response was mostly before your time, but can you tell me about what your command did to support the country through that crisis? Yeah, so I'm very proud of what, uh, what U.S. Army North did, and certainly the American people should be proud of what uh, U.S. Northern Command and all of our military did uh, across the federal scope with Title X forces, but also our state National Guards who continue to be providing support in some states even today. We, we saw on the order of uh, over 5,000 uh, active duty servicemen uh, put in place for the initial response to COVID across 23 states, the Navajo Nation, uh, and then as the vaccine was rolled out, uh, we had soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine, Coast Guardsmen, Space Guardians out there uh, helping roll up sleeves and deliver the vaccine to the American people. Uh, we continue to maintain a, a very small capability right now in the event uh, we need to step back into that fight at a Title X level, uh, and we can expand that rapidly if required. And I believe most of the states are getting ready to come off of their status in support of COVID. So, uh, all of us are looking forward to putting it behind us, but I think it's something we're going to have to live with for some uh, some time, and we're prepared to respond again if required. I was just going to say that, you know, obviously it was an unexpected uh, situation with the pandemic. Do you feel that your command is ready um, in the event of another pandemic? Well, I, I tell you, I think our national infrastructure has learned an awful lot from the COVID uh, pandemic. I think we've seen investments from DHS, HHS, other parts of the government to, to better prepare us for response. Certainly DOD has been part of that. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, in our command, we look at our responsibility 
with regards to uh, uh, defense support of civil authorities as an all hazards response. So uh, we are charged with being able to respond to any type of hazard to include a biological or, or pandemic hazard. Uh, and we, we try, we drill, we rehearse every day uh, to, to think about that. And Operation Allies Welcome was the resettlement of Afghan refugees evacuated last year. What role did your command play in that process? We, we were very proud to support DHS uh, in their role to help settle uh, over 85,000 Afghan families we saw with the exodus from Afghanistan. Uh, it was uh, a multi-service uh, effort, a joint effort. We served as a joint uh, force land component command for Operation Allies Welcome on behalf of NORTHCOM. Uh, supporting DHS at about eight different task force locations across the country. Uh, and what we found was um, due to the speed of response that was required and due to the immediacy of trying to get these folks out of Afghanistan and into safe havens, uh, DOD brought a very unique capability in that regard. So we're proud of that opportunity to serve. And frankly, for many of our service members who may not have been Afghan veterans during the war years, this was their opportunity to give back and be part of the effort uh, that really uh, has has been part of our history for the last 20 years in this country. In general, you're approaching one year on the job. What will be your number one priority for your next year? Well, our number one priority never changes. I think we can't uh, we can't take our eye off the fact that we have a responsibility to defend the homeland first and foremost. Uh, we will be here. We'll be prepared to respond to hurricanes, wildfires, supporting uh, the missions that we do with uh, the Customs and Border Patrol and the Southwest Border. Uh, we're ready for pandemics. We're ready if COVID should reemerge. But day to day, my staff, uh, the folks here at Army North, in support of NORTHCOM, are focusing on defending the homeland and the people of the United States. So then, finally, General, just looking back at your almost one year, what accomplishment are you most proud of? Uh, you know, it's kind of hard, hard to put a finger on it. I was very proud of the response that we put together for uh, Operation Allies Welcome. It really began in July of 21, uh, just before I took command. But we were able to bring it to a close with regards to the majority of the DOD support that uh, we provided uh, by February of this year. And, and I'm just so incredibly proud of the men and women of Army North for the way they conducted themselves. Uh, we're a small organization. And we get asked to do quite a bit. Everybody on my team punches above their weight every day, and it just uh, gives me a lot of pride to be the person that gets to, uh, to lead them. All right. Well, General Evans, so nice to talk to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mimi. It was great to be with you. Coming up on Government Matters, how the federal government is spearheading research into the human brain's most challenging disorders. We'll be right back. The human brain remains one of the greatest mysteries in science and one of the greatest challenges in medicine. The NIH's Brain Initiative is funding research that's beginning to unlock those mysteries. John Nye is the director of the Brain Initiative. John, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. You've been director for two years now. What's the genesis of the Brain Initiative at NIH? Why was it created? So there was a recognition that um, that we just don't have the tools yet to understand how this remarkable organ in the body works. The human brain is the most complex organ in the body, arguably the most complex thing that we know about in the natural, natural world. Uh, the human brain comprises about 86 billion, with a B, nerve cells or neurons, about twice as many other cells. Together, they make up the circuits that process information for us that are responsible for sensing our environment, moving our limbs, 
emotion, consciousness, cognition. How does that all work? We just don't have the tools to understand that. So the mission of the Brain Research Through Innovative Neurotechnologies, the Brain Initiative, is to develop these tools that will, will revolutionize our understanding of the brain in both health and disease and ultimately lead toward cures. So there are a lot of researchers around the country and around the world studying the brain. How do you leverage all that knowledge and disseminate it to really advance the field? Yeah, that's a huge challenge. I mean, since the initiative started funding its first awards in 2014, we've funded over 1,200 projects. Uh, the investigators have published over 5,000 papers, generated a ton of information, a lot of uh, technical resources. This is a huge goal. We are working very hard to make sure that this knowledge gets out there for the benefit of all. We are leveraging teams not only across the country, the U.S., huge talented in the U.S., but also across the world. So we've stood up some really big projects. Some of the impacts we've had in the Brain Initiative is not just the resources being generated. We're also seeing immediate impacts in the clinic and first in human trials that are now being scaled up. But very importantly, we're learning how to do big team science. There's some projects that just require lots of effort to generate resources at scale, and we're really doing a good job of doing that. It's a great lesson for how to conduct science to have a big impact right now. So I want to ask you about real-world examples. You were talking about clinical trials, and ask you first about your research into movement disorders, such as Parkinson's disease. Have there been any progress made on that? So there's been some progress in a couple of domains. Let me talk about the immediate-term impacts first. Uh, some of you may be aware of deep brain stimulation, which has been around for decades, which has been used to stimulate different parts of the brain for patients with Parkinson's disease, other movement disorders, and it's, it's treating symptoms, it's not treating the, the cures. It's been around for a long time, but right now we have some brain initiative funded investigators that are really making some advances with that technology to make it better for the immediate, for the, for the immediate term in so-called adaptive, uh, what we call adaptive DBS. It's actually literally reading out the, the aberrant activity in the brain together with aberrant movement and fine-tuning the stimulation to control that. So that's really amazing. What's really more amazing is if you consider mood disorders. I mean, mood disorders like uh, treatment refractory depression, OCD, PTSD, there's really no cure of, or treatment for these conditions, partly because it, they vary from individual to individual. We don't know which circuits in the brain are misfiring during these uh, conditions and when patients are in crisis. And for many patients, it really is a life or death situation. And what right now we have a couple of uh, research groups out there that we're supporting that are able to use the information that we have now about how circuits are functioning in the brain. They're doing long-term recordings to measure the activity in these circuits. So they're really literally reading, reading some of the activity in the brain that correlates with whether the patient's in a good state or a bad state and fine tuning the stimulation with DBS electrodes that actually shifts to uh, patients from a, from a bad mood state to a good mood state. So this is really incredible. For me, this, is, this was science fiction five years ago, and now we're seeing a possibility for, treat, for treating people who have no other hope. And again, we're trying to scale that up. And as we learn more about the circuits that underlie these conditions, we'll be able to develop more precise therapies. There's a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence that's going into reading, reading out these, uh, what we call biomarkers, and getting into more effective therapies. 
Ultimately, we'd like to move these into molecular and gene therapies, but that, that's a bit far off and further off in the future. And, and you know, when we talk about uh, research projects in, in the medical field, the question always arises about um, ensuring race and gender equity in those projects. <clears throat> are you looking at that, and, and how do you ensure something like that? We, we absolutely are, and we're looking at this in a couple of different ways. One is that in the projects that we're, 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 we're funding, we, we keep a very close eye on the ethical, legal, societal implications of what we're doing. And again, if we cannot develop these new tools and new treatments for the benefit of all, we will have failed, right? So this is something we need to keep front of mind in the very beginning, not kind of decided at the end. So we're building that into how we look at this. We have a, we have a working group, a, a group of external advisors that helps us look at these issues. It's called the Neuroethics Working Group. Another way that we look at this is by, well, who's doing the research to begin with, right? I mean, what we study, who we help is ultimately determined by who's doing the deciding. So we're making a concerted effort to make sure that we have diverse perspectives at the table when these research projects are being designed. This, this happens at the level of the investigators themselves, but also at the, on the part of the folks at NIH who are actually looking at these projects too. So we also have to keep in mind, there's a huge diverse and diverse talent pool not only in the US, but across the world. And we need to leverage all the talent we can to solve these uh, incredibly complex problems. So this is how we're approaching this effort. All right, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website, govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers, 
we sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.